The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, everybody. This is Brian Charlson, and along with me this evening on Tuesday Topics, is the co-host, Mr. Paul Edwards. Say hello, Paul. Hello, Paul. I knew he could do it. We've been training him all week. Yeah. Uh, also with us, of course, are the wonderful trio who helps support us each week, Mr. Rick Morin, who uh, is the king of the double entendre. Hey, Rick. <laughs> hey, Brian. How you doing? I'm hanging in there. And, of course, we have... Mr. Gassman here. Hello there. Hello there, Brian. There we go. And now a, a lady who insists on not using her last name. So <laughs> she's kind of like Madonna, Cher, that kind of thing. Marianne, be... how are you doing this evening? I'm, I'm good, Brian. Thank you. There you go. And she has to put up with three, yeah, three four guys. Four guys mm-hmm. and her. Mm-hmm. And she I feel very glad she is. Yeah. Here virtually because then we can't see her blush. Oh, I don't blush. No. You don't <laughs> blush. Not not much. Boy, it's a good not thing. Not much. <laughs> Would have been wasted on us blind guys anyway. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, this evening we are talking part two on housing related issues. Uh specifically, Paul wanted to make sure that we dealt with the issues of homelessness and it's fair to say the words subsidized housing, Paul? That is, that is fair to say. Okay. So those, those two, we wanted to make sure we properly dealt with those issues because we believe that blind people have unique issues associated with both of those. What would you say the unique thing is, Paul, relative to homelessness? Well, I think... I think there are actually three or four things that, that, that operate. First, um, there are an awful lot of homeless shelters who discriminate against people who are blind by uh, not letting them stay there. Um, there is a, there's a feeling that they're, that, they're, that they're not safe and require more supervision. And so um, I know that in, in Miami-Dade County, uh, when I lived there, we we had to advocate in in order to get the ADA rules that governed homeless shelters uh, rewritten, so that they didn't discriminate against people who are blind. So, I mean, that's one of the largest issues. But but then, you know, another issue is if if you're a blind person and are on the street it's going to be extremely difficult for you to access those homeless services as well. Um, so it's, uh, it, I, think, I think there are really multiple problems that's, that, that surround access to, to homeless programs. And perhaps there'll, there'll be some folks who will come on and tell us a little bit about that because I am surprised at, at how many homeless people I've run across who are blind or visually impaired um, in in the last thirty or forty years, it's it, it's not an insignificant number. I can think of at least eight or ten that I've run across. Wow. Gotcha. Well, you know the another issue here is blind people 
who become homeless and are guide dog users, trying to get any animal into a homeless shelter is nigh into impossible. I'm trying to get any food for that animal too. Yep, that's part of it as well. Absolutely. But it it makes, again, it's a uniquely, well, not uniquely, because there are people out there who have uh, service animals, not guide dogs, but service animals, that probably would be better off while in a homeless shelter having that animal with them as a calming agent if their disability is uh, a mental disability of some kind. But the system simply doesn't handle it well. And these homeless shelters, by definition, again, you come in for the night, you go out all day. There's, you know, it's well, not like it's a social that, environment for the most that's, part. That's the old style homeless program. It's not, it's not the current one. One they have in Boston. Well, it's, it, uh, you know, in an awful lot of, um, in an awful lot of cities now, um, and, and this has become particularly common over in Europe, there is an entirely different attitude towards homelessness now, which is interesting because there appears to be just as much discrimination against folks with disabilities in these programs as there is in the older kind. But the newer kind essentially says the only way you can deal with homelessness is actually to provide those folks with homes without attempting to reform their behaviors first. And so in... They've done that in Utah in particular. That's where... Right. Utah um, and the New York City area. And in Vancouver, in British Columbia, and, and in several countries in Europe. And, and essentially, they, they actually provide these folks with, with appropriate and effective housing. But what they end up doing with individuals who are disabled is they end up throwing them into hospitals instead of homeless shelters. And they refuse to. Um, for the most part, allow those folks to be integrated into the community services um, that are available for folks who who uh, have have homelessness as an issue. Um, and it's pretty scary because, um, you know, often when blind people end up in these situations, they're they're in those situations because. They have essentially been abandoned. It's not like they've walked away from home. Um, you know, there there are lots of situations where um, uh, guardians or or relatives simply leave blind people um, in in large cities because they figure somebody's going to take care of them, and we don't want to anymore. All of those things I know are. What's the word I would use? Anecdotal. Yes. Because I have not found much in the way of any data on these things uh, with respect to people with disabilities, specifically blindness. Um, Everything I've found is cross-disability and heavily weighted toward cognitive issues of one kind or another. Right. Uh, And secondarily physical disabilities um, 
but it's kind of like the what what is the most common disability it would be a cognitive disability slash mental health related issue second most common would be a physical disability of one kind or another third hearing loss and yep. a distant fourth blindness uh and you know the blindness system as a whole has complained that there's not enough research being done on issues associated with blindness. Lots of research about uh, eye health uh, processes, like we were talking about a few shows ago, right. or restoring sight and those kind of things, but not a lot of research when it comes to demographic information about blind people in particular. Uh, just, it's very, very sparse. One of the things also, I think, Paul, that add to this homelessness issue is, I'm going to refer to them as the unhomeless. These are people who are blind or visually impaired who are virtual captives in a caretaker's home, whether it be their parents, their siblings, or their children because those individuals become dependent on the income of a disability check or an SSI check to support the family's financial needs, which makes it very hard for a blind person to move out to be an independent person. Uh, they don't qualify for things uh, because the system thinks they don't need additional support to do these kinds of things uh, and that you talked about the eight to ten people you've seen that are homeless i've right. seen at least four times that many who are in the situation i just described oh if if not more uh you know there there are a lot of people who would argue that it that it is a characteristic of um a lot of the the folks with the lowest income um and and unfortunately, um, while I don't know that it has a lot to do with what we're doing, what we're dealing with tonight, it's certainly a huge issue. And I, I, I don't know what you do to fix that one either. Neither do I. Neither do I. Uh, I think one thing that one might do, and then we'll move back firmly on the center topic, is um, utilize the ability that a SSI or SDI person can do and save a little each month because uh, you're allowed to do that. And that would help you get past that hump of first and last month's rent. Yeah. Well, I mean, particularly if, if it's SSDI, uh, I mean, and well, either really, and, and also, you know, remember the new programs that's that's out there, which actually allows for a lot of saving. Yep. Anyway, housing. So there's this issue of homelessness. I wonder if any of our listeners have been homeless and can tell us about it. And please feel free to say only that that you're comfortable say, to say, but know that we are not on this call, judging you and your past or current circumstances. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, and Marianne, do we have? We do. 
Lori Scharf has her hand raised. Hey, Lori, do you do you want to join our panel and talk about um, subsidized housing in more detail? Hi. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Great. So um, the first thing I wanted to say is homelessness is a huge issue. And my feeling as somebody who worked in and around homelessness for almost 20 years is that one of the reasons, um, you know, it's, it's not really seen as an issue among people who are blind is because on paperwork that's filled out for both federal and state compliance, it's not a question. You know, it's kind of the old adage of, well, how many blind people have been hit by a car? We don't know because it doesn't show up on, you know, incident reports, that type of thing. Um, You know, until disability becomes synonymous with race and ethnicity, you're not really going to get good figures. And that's still even questionable because all that stuff is usually optional. Um, Yeah. And I would absolutely agree with that and and go one step further. Um, If, if, if people get regarded as homeless and get put into a homeless shelter, they're usually put there under another category rather than under blindness or visual impairment, because often they're sneaking people into those shelters and they don't want to let some of the people who are running those shelters know that the person has a vision problem. And, you know, there are quite honestly some people who don't want, um, you know, others in the shelter to know that information because then they see themselves as potentially more vulnerable. Correct. Um, And uh, absolutely true. And, and it's another thing that we shouldn't actually forget. Um, there, there are there are a lot of statistics out there that suggest that um, at the low end of the spectrum, the the uh, the level of crime against people with disabilities, whether it's blind people or others, is actually significantly higher than it is in the mainstream population. Yes, yeah. It. I mean, it's it. That is definitely true. Um, you know, it's the the. Um, I, I really concur, Brian, with a, a lot of what you said about statistics and, you know, people just being seen as a check. That's a huge issue. And it's often a deterrent from people wanting to go to work because they don't understand the complexities of options to returning to work and, and their benefits. Um, you know, that that becomes a huge part of it. They're being told by family, well, if you work, then this check's going away. Well, that's not usually the case right away. Um, you know, it, it's, it's so complex, but it also creates that interdependence within the household. Um, so the, the other topic, uh, that you were referring to is the email that I sent you. Yeah. No, well, not only, not only that, but, but I think you, you may know as much as Brian and I do on subsidized housing. So we would love to have your expertise if you want to join us on the panel. Uh, possibly for a little bit. Um, I have to leave for a call at, at just bef- that starts just before eight. But I just wanted to also say that um, people should understand that in some states you have a right to housing and in other states you do not. Right. Um, so that like is it's considered a state's issue. I gotcha. Yeah, you know? it's 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 um. 
it's very, um, very interesting and intricate. And, um, you know, it even goes down as looking at the as far as the county level, because very often a portion of it is funded by or the entry point is at the county level. And, and it can often be at the city level as well. So um, and 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 in fact, there are there are actually um, there are actually um, city and county um, housing departments um, mm -hmm. that operate in the same in the same community. So in, in Miami-Dade, every city virtually um, had a had a, a housing department that had Section Eight housing and HUD housing, and the same thing was true of the county as a whole. And I think that's pretty much the case all over the country. Yeah, usually in order to receive the federal component, you have to have a population above a certain amount. So usually right. you have to meet the federal guidelines to be a city, um, which I don't remember exactly what they are. I want to say it's like a population of 50,000 or more, something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that there's two points I want to make. First off, Another group of people that are probably vastly undercounted are those with multiple disabilities. Yes. If you are a low vision person and a person with a psychiatric disability, uh, you could say all day long that you can't see, you can't see. But that doesn't mean that the system believes you. There's a level of disbelief that happens under those circumstances. Uh, one of the things that I find truly amazing in all of this is um, I watched a couple of videos this week about um, all of the things that must be in place. You have to answer a series of questions when doing HUD housing that uh, are designed to, and I, I don't read evil into this, but you can't tell by the nature of the question whether or not saying yes or no will make you instantly qualify or not qualify for the housing. Um, is it true also that you have to go to a HUD office to apply? Um, I don't that, believe. Go ahead. Yeah, that is usually determined by the provider. And some of that has come into place because if it's a voucher that's not attached to a location, um, meaning that so town A has only apartment buildings and their apartment buildings are what has the subsidized housing and town B has vouchers that they give out with a specific value that you can use within their geographic area. So town B gets a lot of people who are from out of town and mm -hmm. a lot of them have started requiring either that you pick up the application in person or you send a designee. Um, a lot of them have also started requiring that you either work or live within the town or city 
And that's to cut down because a voucher that's, that's not associated with a physical location can be moved within one year of receiving it. Or if you can justify that you've done your darndest to find housing but can't find anything within their geographic area, you can move that voucher anywhere in the country. So, so we're using this term voucher. So mm -hmm. can you explain the nature of a voucher? So for example, with section eight, a voucher has a value associated with it based on the geographic area where you live, as well as so your fa family let's, size. Let's define section eight a little bit more. So essentially section eight is, is a system that actually allows you to use the money that is covered by that voucher. Um, to go out and rent what are uh, qualifying apartments um, in in the kind of gen the general renting apartment elements. Um, now, uh, <laughs> there are all kinds of problems that are that that are associated with Section Eight and yes. people who are blind. Um, in in particular, there have been a number of studies that have been done both by HUD by blindness organizations and by um, county entities that have explored um, Section 8. And the, the general findings are that in 60 to 70 percent of the Section 8 locations, um, if you are blind and uh, apply for uh, a spot, they will tell you there are no vacancies, even though a person who is sighted can go five minutes later and be given an apartment. Um, so, um, but that's section eight. And then there are other there are other ways that you that you get to access subsidized housing. In particular, um, one does that by uh, applying to live in a number of subsidized buildings that are actually built by either the city or the county uh, with funds from housing and urban development. Mm -hmm. and, and so those are the two major components of subsidized housing. Yes. And section eight can also, section eight funding can also be used to purchase a home. Um, the intricacies of that though are very complex because section eight, would pay a certain amount, but it's the principal, it's not the interest or taxes. So places like Massachusetts probably and New York that have a higher property tax rate than say Virginia, it would be a little harder to get Section 8 housing because they're going to take your income into consideration, but they're not going to take into consideration the fact that you might have this huge tax bill. That being said, very often there are tax abatements or similar types of programs for people with disabilities who meet specific guidelines to reduce what they have to pay in property taxes or school taxes. You know, the, the whole idea that um, there's, quote, Section 8 housing, lets the world as a whole think, Oh, those are those special places for people who are getting their rent covered in part or in total by the government. 
No, it's not total. So it's never it in not, total. It is not total. That's one misconception Definitely. by those who are not part of the system. And the other is a landlord uh, of a house or an apartment building or whatever have to qualify themselves to be Section 8 housing, which, well, to my knowledge at least, there's minimum standards for that. Well, but, go ahead. The, the other thing I would just like to say is that there, it's also very complicated because somebody who may not have the ability put, to put down a security deposit, Section 8 doesn't cover security deposits. So you may have somebody that goes to their local Department of Social Services, applies for and is approved for a um, subsidy to assist with a security deposit or part of a security deposit. Social Services does their inspection. It passes Social Services inspection, but it may fail a Section 8 inspection because it's, different, it's a different set of guidelines. So it's the two systems yeah. often play yeah, off against each other. <laughs> exactly. So the other aspect of uh, the finance of things is this idea of multiples and definitions. The way different entities define mm -hmm. different things. And one of the more interesting ones I've found is how the Social Security Administration for SSDI and SSI define disability and how HUD defines disability. The HUD bar is significantly uh, lower than is the Social Security, Social Security Administration bar. We've, you know, you have to go and get a medical appointment with a specialist in the type of disability that you have and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. With HUD, to be declared a person with disability, you need a licensed um, doctor slash medical profession professional to indicate that, in their opinion, you have a disability. It's a lower bar, but boy, you don't see that in any of the forms. You only see questions like, do you have uh, a disability that limits your ability to work it might be something along those lines but it is a definitely lower bar and I, I this is all leading to this statement the system is too complicated for the average human being to know how to be as accurate as you can be in going through the process and where you need to be careful not to answer more than the question required of you. And to add to that, Brian, before we spoke about the section or the subsidies associated with a specific location, an apartment building, for example, in those buildings, when those apartments are built, a certain percentage 
have to be accessible to individuals using mobility devices and a certain percentage have to be accessible to people who are deaf um, and, you know, would need something like a visual smoke alarm, something like that. None of that addresses the fact that the microwave is not going to be accessible, the thermostat, the, all that stuff, you know, as a blind person. And, you know, that's something that ACB and other organizations could be working on to help change going forward, you know, when regulations get repromulgated and, and things like that. And we should Yesterday, also I bought a freezer and the freezer, because right now there's like a six month wait to buy major appliances, post COVID, you know, supply issues. But one that was available that would fit my space has a touch controls to it to make it colder, warmer, uh, whatever. Those, those types of controls are inaccessible. So I'm, oh, I'm no feeling that personally. You know, I use, I've always had ones that had a knob that mm-hmm. one could turn and you could easily mark. This is the first time I've had to buy one that had a touch screen. Yeah. I uh, mean as part of its controls. Yeah, the our refrigerator for when we moved in 3 years ago, that's exactly how the the um temperature is controlled and things like that. My freezer that I waited 6 months for and wound up changing from Home Depot to Lowe's doesn't I don't even know where those controls are. <laughs> exactly. And that's all I care about. <laughs> Paul, if I could just add one little thing based on just my daughter, who's not visually impaired, but has um, cognitive and mental health issues, um, is in Section 8 housing. And when she moved in, he kind of rushed her through the inspection. And when she moved in, it was in, uninhabitable. Uh, that has to be another concern for people with vision loss who yeah. are going to look at places. How do they um, assess whether it's habitable or not? And so many of them in so many places don't do proper inspections. No, that's, yeah. that is a huge issue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely mm-hmm. correct. The and other thing that, the that I section- wanted to say just before, just before we get past it, just while we're, while we're doing definitions is in addition to a requirement under section eight, there is also a requirement for HUD housing that is built that says that a certain percentage, it's tiny, I think it's 10% now, um, <clears throat> of, of the construction that's being done in a HUD development is supposed to be accessible to folks with disabilities. Um, and this is true in spite of the fact that the, the, the population of people with disabilities in our country is 20%. And, and the other side to that is very often you'll find that the HUD type of buildings are mixed senior and disability. And when they They find a senior who might be visually impaired or might use hearing aids or something like that, oh, look, we met our disability requirement. So that person fills the senior category, but they put them in the disability category. And then somebody who's under 62 doesn't get the house or 65, depending on the HUD subsidy, doesn't get the housing because the other person took it. Uh, that's that's yeah. correct. Very As good. Question here: Do either of you recognize the initials COC? 
C-O-C- that ring a bell? That there is, you know, when you apply for subsidized housing, virtually every time you apply, you're going to be put on a waiting list. Sure. Uh, and there are times when that waiting list, uh, even it has to be closed uh, because it makes no sense. There's simply not enough available housing to put people on a waiting list for a house that doesn't exist or an apartment that doesn't exist at this point. So those two things really impact things. And apparently there is a process under which you can go uh, and get yourself not on the bottom 30%, but at the top 30% of applicants. It's not just a first-come, first-serve approach, is it? That's my understanding. When you get put on a waiting list, you also get ranked. Um, yes, and that is true. Um, it also they also can take based on if you're homeless or things like that. So I always tell people like, if you were not homeless, but you've become homeless, you need to go and change that with all the housing providers that you've applied for. Correct. And And there is a national listing um, that people can get emailed to them of section eight openings. And I think it comes out once a week. I don't even know. I just kind of look at it and delete it. If I don't have anybody in the area of, you know, wherever it is. Right. And some of them actually say, you know, open nationwide because their lists are so short, Um, which I often think to myself, well, probably somebody wouldn't want to live there because there's no public transportation. But every so often, you know, you you just never know. And I've had people that have done major moves across country because it meant that they had stable housing. And then once they got the voucher, they could then move somewhere else down the road. So, and, you know, definitions again, because we've been talking about homelessness. Mm, and that's a very I think there's a popular term. understanding of what that means. And it is not, in fact, what most of us think. We think that's a person who's literally living on the street. No, because very and often that's not if true. that's happening... Very often when that happens, it's a choice. And when I say that, I don't mean it to be disrespectful, but it's that somebody is in a predicament, in a situation where that's where they are the most comfortable and that's what they're choosing. And they don't want to be in a dwelling. Um, Right. Right. There's that. And there's also this issue of, How many days in the past X number of months have you been, um, say, sleeping on a friend's couch? Couch surfing, yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. And it, you know, we have these popular mental definitions for terms, but you really need to look at what the regulations how they define that term Mm -hmm. a lot more people would qualify yeah as a result of the hud definition Mm -hmm. of homelessness 
versus the popular idea of what homelessness right. means. Before we get too far past this, this whole question of lists, there are a couple of points that I want to make, and maybe Laurie will have a couple to make as well. I, I think that one of, the, one of the issues that operates for blind people is there are generally uh, advertisements that come out in local newspapers when, when a HUD list is going to be opened. Um, but there, there are never any public service announcements that are made. And there isn't any real regularity to when HUD lists get open. And also, even if you get put on a waiting list where you're told that the waiting list looks as though it's going to be two to two and a half years, um, that, that HUD entity can almost at their own discretion, it seems, after a relatively short period of time, scrub everybody on that list and start over. So you've got to somehow have a way of keeping in touch with as many of the housing entities as are in your area. And you need to probably have a pretty good list of those. And and you need to keep in contact with them and develop good relationships so that they will tell you when there are going to be changes that are made in their lists and, and so that they can help you to be sure to be put in the most advantageous place on that list. Usually, if, if, you, if you approach them right, they're actually pretty prepared to help you as a blind person. If, if, you, if you're prepared, I, but I think the one thing you've got to do in order for that to happen is, is, is you've got to, uh, gosh, I don't know how to say it any other way, but you've got to, you've got to appear to be a poor blind person. <laughs> Would yes. you agree with all those things, Lori? Well, I, I think you don't want to appear to be too incompetent, I, I, for lack sure, of a better I, word. Right. No, I, get, so, I, I don't think an incompetent blind person, but a, a pitiable blind person is what I'm looking at. Well, I, like I, I think <laughs> you want to make your needs known as yes, it relates sure. to notifications, as it, yep. re, as it relates to how do I update my address? Things like that. Um, yep. Your public library very often will hang a sign saying that the Section 8 list is open. That's one of the places they automatically go. Sometimes the local libraries even give out applications for Section 8 or subsidized housing through a municipality that's being built. I don't know, but there could be a talking book or Braille library in the United States that's that proactive. If any, I would think Perkins or Andrew Highskill, but beyond those two, I don't really see it happening on a regular basis. Um, You know, but what better way to get information out to people? Agreed. Agreed. You know, it's... uh... Again, one of the regular haunts of people with this, people who are homeless is public libraries. It's a place yes. to get into air conditioning in hot weather and to get warm in cold weather. Um, and to basically be out of underfoot of the public at large 
who uh, make judgments about a, the homeless. It's also a safe place for many people. Exactly. You know, the librarians right? and the, yep. uh, you know, the people that shelve the books, they look out for the regulars. Absolutely true. Yep. Absolutely true. And that's also a place where individuals, I mean, let's, let's face it. If you're really struggling for housing, then you probably don't have a lot of money to be spending on the internet and the latest technologies. So libraries provide opportunities for you to use shared technology, you know, and set yourself up a Google email address. Doesn't cost you anything to do that. Uh, and then, uh, Go to a library. And the libraries often. in all five cities that are in the Watertown area here, all I've worked with to make sure they have screen readers and screen magnifiers on their publicly accessible computers. And very often the individuals in need are, are able to use the bathroom facilities and wash up yep. in a library. You know, you can't do that in Target. Also, I quite honestly think library bathrooms are much better than Target, but. <laughs> I think you're right there. So these are all issues of homelessness. And I want to make sure that anybody else who wants to speak on this, this first thing of homelessness uh, have a chance to speak. So Marianne, do we have any raised hands at this we point? We have two hands raised, um, three actually now. We have Sheila. You may unmute. Hello, Sheila. Sheila, you just need to unmute. She's having difficulties. She's she's she can unmute. Shall we move to the next? Hand? Sure. We have Melody. yeah, I think so. Melody Holloway. Melody, you may unmute. Hmm. <laughs> well, two out of two trouble unmuting. I'm sorry. I would suggest putting their hands down, Marianne, yeah, I can do that. and picking that third person. Yeah. Don't want to discourage those two ladies from raising your hands again. Sometimes, sometimes Zoom permission. just gets ornery. Yeah. Yes. Well, they definitely have permission to talk, so I will. So, Lori, you've had quite a lot of success in, in getting blind folks um, served effectively by subsidized housing, because I, I don't think I could say that. I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? Yeah. Have, have, you, had, have you had a lot of success 
um, actually getting people who are blind served by subsidized housing? I think it it really depends a lot on the housing authority that you're dealing with. Right. The available subsidies. Um, sometimes people don't remember that a township and a city, as you said earlier, Paul, both may have housing and, you know, they may be on one list, but not the other. So it's more yep. about getting yourself onto the lists, and it, it, you know, it literally could be a full-time job managing all of that type of stuff. And I've always really encouraged people to get some type of caseworker or, you know, I've worked with clients on stuff, getting them onto housing lists and making yep. sure that their information stays updated because it, you know, it's so important. A contact from a housing authority could be, please return, you know, the other half of this postcard to stay on our list. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's important. Um, you know, know where your mail is going, know that you can trust where you get your mail. Um, you know, if, if you, hello, wow, we got somebody in. Hey, Melanie. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, this is, uh, this is Pamela. Um, I'm Hi. in Virginia and, um, hello. I wanted to ad address some two things that you said very briefly. And one was, I think you're absolutely right about um, multiple disabilities that sometimes they overlook one and will address the other. So I think that can definitely be an accessibility. Plus, I think it's um, right also uh, what you said about the more contacts you have, the better. That's, right. that's all I'll say. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you for calling in. We appreciate it. Thank you a lot. That's excellent. I'm Sheila, and I'm hello. Hello, Hi, Sheila. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Who's Sheila, go first? ahead. I was, <laughs> I was. Yep, go ahead, Sheila. Oops. They keep muting me. Okay, um, just to just to let you guys know, um, you guys fixed it. But the reason that I couldn't answer when you first called was that I didn't even have a mute button. The the host had to do it anyway um one of the things that i have experienced i had a couch surfer in my house for nine months um i am on section eight and i have a voucher but and and you're not supposed to have anybody in your house that's not on your lease for more than two weeks but i didn't make this person pay um because i didn't want them on my lease long story um but I, but, um, so I had to risk my section eight, but this person was 55 years old, has multiple disabilities. One is a visual disability. One is a hearing disability. One is a mobile mobility disability. Um, and one is a mental health issue. And then there are some that I know are there, but have not been, um, Mm -hmm. diagnosed yeah investigated or diagnosed yeah mm -hmm. um so um this person i live in california and i live in the san francisco bay area and in california it's almost impossible to find housing but um um hud has these things called 
mainstream vouchers. And they are for um, a, a housing authority can set aside a certain number of vouchers and there are eligibility recs that are attached to them. And these are portable vouchers. They, they are not project-based. Project-based vouchers stay with one unit or building. Right. Um, and these other vouchers go with the person. And so these are vouchers that go with the person. Um, housing stock is a problem, but a huge, huge problem is the interfaces and portals that are required to right. even apply for each individual apartment complex. And yep. I, live, I live in a city and there are complexes all over the city that are that are known to take section eight, not to mention those you might find on Craigslist. And if this, I'm sorry, I, I have to leave in like a few second, few minutes, but I just wanted to say it's important to understand that the amount that the way section eight calculates the value of, of a, um, of a yeah. choice voucher is, yeah. has not, the amount has not gone up. It actually has gone down because it just hasn't been increased over time. And, you know, that is also an area that could be advocated for um, because you let's just say for, you know, talking purposes that a single person's voucher can not exceed a thousand dollars. Well, in San Francisco, on Long Island, in many places in New York city, you're not going to find an apartment that you could live in for that amount. It's not going to happen. My sister moved out in 1991 and was paying $1,000 for a studio. So, you know. Correct. Um, it's, it's a huge issue. The other thing that I just wanted to comment on, before anybody takes anybody into your apartment as a friend, as a guest, understand what's called squatter's rights. Um, I actually know somebody that wound up, he went to jail and somebody moved into his apartment and got squatter's rights while he was in jail. Um, And he lost his Section 8 voucher. So it's really important. It's dangerous. It's, yeah, Mm -hmm. it is. And I mean, I could tell you horror stories. (laughs) This was a person... Mm -hmm. This, this, this was and is a person who was in the situation that you were speaking of near the beginning of the call where, and thank you, Lori, for everything you're bringing here, because you guys have basically already painted this man's profile. He's 55 years old. And in California, in some places, you're a senior, in some places, you're not. He is not tech. He's not very tech savvy. Um, He does not have a working computer. So everything was in, was done by a cell phone. Um, and so I, as a totally blind person was working with these inaccessible portals, um, rent cafe being, uh, one of them. Right. Um, and, um, and there are a couple others and I can't think of them off the top of my head, but, um, I, he was with his parents who are, elderly, a mom and a stepdad, and the mom is about to turn 80 next year. 
and she's been his caregiver. Um, and they were, and they were um, benefiting from the money that they were getting for being his um, caregivers. And they, and that's how they could pay the rent. And so he was in basically a financially abusive situation. And um, the mainstream voucher, one of the eligibility recs was that you had to be in danger of being or actually homeless. And we made a case, and I wasn't sure whether it would work or not, but it did. That, and, and we didn't have to lie or, or, or um, you know, stretch, stretch anything. Um, but it, it pits family members against each other. They didn't know we were doing this. Right. So, Sheila, let, let, let's, let me ask you one other question while I've got you. How difficult was it for you to get Section 8? How many hoops did you have to, to jump through? I went to Section 8 in another county than that which I lived, and that county had no housing available, like, like no housing stock. It was, mm -hmm. it was San Mateo County, and I live in Alameda County. Right. And in, in Alameda County, there are five housing authorities, three to five, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. and, and in San Mateo, there's one. San Mateo does not have the greatest transit unless you're on one particular street, one mm -hmm. long street. And um, this, so when I got the Section 8, as a blind person with other disabilities, um, they looked at me and they, they winked and they said, you need to be near your care system, right? And I said, care system? What the hell are they talking about? <laughs> and, and... Um, and they said, well, you need to be near your doctors and your support team and everything, right? And I'm going, I know there's a clue here. What's this? And, and it dawned on me. And I go, yeah. And they go, <laughs> we're going to port you. You can go anywhere in the United States. Where do you want to be? So, nice. in Alameda, so in Alameda County, there are um, several um, housing authorities. So I did the research. Because this was after I talked to the people in San Mateo and I said, you have exactly two places that provide Section 8. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not good enough at Craigslist to do Craigslist. I need help right. when I do Craigslist. And, and um, for a lot of reasons. But, um, and another thing that I want to bring up is that as a blind person, I want someone with eyeballs who is um, pretty alert and savvy to come with me. And I will ask that person, I will give that person some instructions before we get to the place. And then I will um, ask them questions after we leave the place. When I got to this Section 8 unit, it should not have passed inspection, and it did. And I'm grateful on one hand, but those were the three worst months of my life. I'd never had roaches in my life before I moved to this place. <laughs> and so I, 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 I am blessed, and I have... Um, there were electrical problems here. There were roaches here. There, there was it was substandard housing, um, but it, it, um, and and it is a duplex, and my water heater was being used by the upper unit. Oh dear! Not that, not that tenant's fault. The landlord didn't do his job. There were two water heaters, but he didn't do his job and hook things up properly, and that was a known problem by the PG&E folks. The, the Pacific Gas and Electric folks mm -hmm. um, before I moved in here. 
And so they looked at me and they went, oh, no. And I went, tell me what I don't know. And they did. And then I had to uh, I had to jigger some things to get the PG&E guy to write on a piece of paper that my gas was being used to heat the upstairs unit's water. And Yikes. then, and then I had to, um, and this is all before I got the couch surfer. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then I had to prove that, um, and, and then, so I failed to inspections because my landlord was taking a sweet time at fixing the thing. Mm-hmm. And I knew about it, it too much. I knew about it two years before I figured out how to get it even uh, assessed and brought to light. And Section 8 would have abated my rent if I had um, failed the third inspection. And that would have started a spiral that technically the Lord, the landlord couldn't throw me out, but you know damn well that I wouldn't have been able to stay here. And as a person yep. with a disability who needs good transit and needs accessible housing physically and because mm-hmm. I have a mobility disability too. Um, and, you know, I, I was like, no. And it was the most stressful thing and the most terrifying thing I'd ever done in my life. And I did it because I was fighting for my life. I couldn't afford the bills I was paying. Ms. Sheila, thank you so much for your call. Ms. Lori, do you have any final thing you'd like to add before you disappear? You have already. Very good. I think she disappeared. I think she did. Very good. Sheila, thank you very much. We really appreciate your your input. Um, I think it's really a appropriate to hear from some folks who've actually gone through um, some of the some of the experiences that you're talking about. Um, so, Ms. Marion, do we have somebody yes, else? Melody, and she is unmuted. <coughs> Ms. Melody. Hello. Thank you for the there availability of the unmute button. Now, from mm-hmm. this multiple disability aspect, as if my name was called earlier, um, I was just denied medical care again with another psych eval and the housing situation is getting in the way. I technically have been homeless. Um, as a child, it was as if I was in foster care, but with my parents and with, you know, staying it back and forth between grandparents, between an ant, roach infested, bed bug, mouse, not knowing if I was going to find a dead fly on the couch and I just wanted to sit down or not. The abandoned high school that we had to live in, we lived in a, a back and forth between this little office that, um, my father, who was very easily influenced, um, had us stay periodically in this, what we thought was this little apartment that we were eventually taken by a con artist at the time I was battling a bacterial ulcer in 94. So it's been, you know, um, technically just staying where we can, having people do us favors and asking a lot in return, or when they do give, having my parents just degrade them or having one do it and the other allow it. And yep. me not wanting that to happen to him because I appreciated the kindness. And at the same time, sleeping on the floor, trying to have my brailler on one side of me and some other device on the other side. Remember, it's there and then having to get up and go to school. And I, you know, it's what we don't think about. And now having tried getting out since 2004, applying here and there, having to deal with this mid-grade age bracket, turning 37 in four days with a multiplex of disabilities not just the ones that I speak of, mm-hmm. um, the housing and the medical care, they're connected because 
my vitals are, you know, 180s, 190s, 160 over 100. And again, I just tried today and didn't get it as I needed. So it's becoming cognitive issues, processing coherence, the hearing um, balance and dexterity. And it's just, I, um, I don't look good on paper. So it's what I need is some help that seniors can get, possibly a skilled nursing care. And right now, I don't know how to ask for that because it was denied in 2016 because, oh, you might be a liability and do yourself in. Well, well now I might. So, and the, what HUD is it getting? I, I'm waiting on a housing choice voucher. Um, there are some places that will not actually accept Section 8. The 811 independent living is the quickest. Any of these options, I cannot have anyone necessarily live with me and alone I'm not constructive I'm hardly eating anyway and sleeping and now you know I'm basically alone where I am and I don't have anyone to help me off the floor like I had two weeks ago so it's yep. what's not understood you know and any the housing crisis right now I'm seeing local stories of someone just wanting to take in their kids and grandkids and getting put out of their home and with the eviction issues the escrow accounts the inspections that I can't handle right now with basic needs not met um, there's even a lady in the Columbus chapter saying her she doesn't feel her guide dog team is safe in her Section 8 apartment, so she's going to have to figure this out again. Why now? So this is one of those, you know, a lot of things that are just happening when people don't know what to do and the trauma of trying and being told I hadn't, not being able to access services that I would normally be able to access if I didn't have to handle being here or being in some kind of supportive housing or HUD where they're asking why an ambulance is pulling up at 2 in the morning or why I'm leaving at 2 in the morning. And then we've got the ADA transportation issues versus non. We've got the safety. We've got the, you know, I need to be right. where I am to access certain stores where I'm known to have help pilot just revamp their services before I was dead set against it. Now I think I'm going to try. And it's like, okay, you know, there's an uptick in crime. So I need an okay enough area right now. Externally, I'm safe in the home. I'm not. So it's one of those situations where fighting the losing battle. And if, if people don't get on it, it's going to be, you know, I'd rather just lay here and decline and not fight this after. Mm -hmm. I hear you, but I, but, but I, I've, I've got a feeling things are going to turn around and you're going to get accepted. That's what I think. What do you think, Brian? I vote for that. Now, uh, one of too. the things that really matters in all of this is, you know, we're talking about, uh, I'm not going to use the word average, but shall we say, there's those who are in the program for obvious reasons that they've been accepted into the program. And then there are those that don't fit the mold. And it becomes almost essential that they have a qualified um, person working with them and helping them get through all of these hoops to see what all the potentials are. People really need a lorry to get through so much of the bureaucracy involved in these programs. One of the things that I was struck by was one of the definitions of Section 8 housing quali uh, landlord qualifying to accept Section 8 housing vouchers is that HUD believes that the price being paid is, quote, appropriate. Now, we were talking last week about what's happening to rents all across the United States. 
That is that they're going up in leaps and bounds. Uh, and that's not likely to get better anytime soon. So that is reducing the number of units available in virtually every city and town. Uh, I read a report this morning that 20% of the homes uh, that were sold this year in the United States were sold to out-of-state buyers. In other words, those homes were bought by investors. Uh, that's not talking about the big-time uh, investment uh, portfolios that you can buy into on Wall Street. This is an individual who might be in San Francisco and can't afford to buy a house there, but sees a house as a way not to waste their rent on, but they can qualify to buy a home in uh, Louisiana or Mississippi or uh, more rural locations. So they become landlords. And then they put the rent on as sufficient to both cover the mortgage payment and to cover any costs of maintenance and a management fee because after all, he's in California, he'd be a spot of home in Mississippi. So he's got to get somebody in that area to be uh, the manager. So this just drives the rent amounts higher and higher. And as Laurie said earlier, HUD has not had an increase in the pool of money to support these programs. It has not gone up with the rate of inflation, and it sure as heck has not gone up in the rate of inflation of rents. All issues we, we should be caring about uh, across the board. So, Melody, thank you very much for calling in. Yeah. Know that uh, we are absolutely listening, paying attention, and we'll be talking about what ACB and what individuals can do about these issues later in the program. So, Marianne, anybody else with yes, a raised we hand? We have um, area code 505. I think it's Beth. Yes, I'm Beth Fazio from New Mexico. Yep. Hey, hey Beth, Beth, how are you doing? And um, I'm doing really good. Uh, I, I've tried to apply for Section 8. Some of our waiting lists are so long that um, in this county where I am, it hasn't been open for 27, since 2017, and they only open for two weeks. And then they close it, and then um, they don't open it again for this one housing authority handles 12, 12 counties. And not all of the counties are opening um, at the same time, and they said, well, we cut funding for, they've cut, the government has cut funding for Section 8 or HUD choice vouchers. And then another thing that's happening here in New Mexico is a lot of times, even if you get your Section 8 voucher, these um, tax credit homes where they're 30, 40, and 50% of your income. Yep. Right. They'll tell you, 
yeah, we can accept Section 8, but you need to be making three times the rent for your income. A lot of people with disabilities don't have that. I, I do have multiple disabilities. I'm an epileptic and I'm visually impaired and I'm a senior citizen. And um, so what was happening in New Mexico a few years ago, they thought it just easier to put people in nursing homes. Well, they waste a lot more money like that and, and those people don't need that care and they resent being there. And uh, well, because they don't need that care. But um, I've tried applying for housing in different counties here in, in New Mexico. You know, I wouldn't even mind a Section 8 voucher. So I could take it anywhere, go go to another state. But And then something interesting that's happening over here is with the housing authorities, with the public housing authorities like Bernalillo County took over Las Vegas's, Las Vegas, New Mexico, or San Miguel County's yep. housing authority. Um, like uh, I just found out last week that like Roswell, which is Lincoln County over here, took over Otero County's house, public housing authority. Now, why is that happening? I, I consolidation. It has, it has, yeah, it has to do with being able to use funds if you don't have to hire staff in yeah. every county. Right, oh. I'm sure that's part and of then, it. And the number of units available. Um, if you're not only taking first come first serve, but also uh, doing some shifting based on uh, how desperate they think you truly are for getting that housing, the they have a bigger stock of housing to deal with in that fashion. I know I I've been to uh, well of uh, 49 states and one of the things that people here on the east coast and for that matter either coast um, don't realize is how much distance there is between communities in places like new mexico and oh yeah nevada yes it's they're incredible so when we're talking counties here in in massachusetts you know, a county isn't that big of a thing, geographically speaking. But you talk New Mexico. There's a lot of square miles in a yes, county. And, and they're saying, well, you can live in, uh, right now I live in Alamogordo. And um, it's not, there's not that much housing here. Um, there's really not. There's there's that tax credit housing, and then there's the HUD housing, and then um, Section 8, which, like I said, hasn't been open since, like, 2018 or, right. you know, since mm -hmm. COVID. And my daughter that lives in Albuquerque, her friend, now she's cited, but she she moved to Texas, and she came back. Meanwhile, she, she had applied for a Section 8 voucher because she had children 
Now her mm-hmm. children are teenagers. She barely got her Section 8 after 12 years of being on the waiting list. Yep, I believe Again, that. Like, huge, wow. huge, huge issues. I, I honestly believe that uh, every American, everybody living in this country are finding it harder and harder to find affordable housing. Uh, And something that I was told about two weeks ago, because my independent living um, case manager or whatever you want to call her, she knows I've been looking for housing for a long time. She said, call this number in Albuquerque. They, They have supportive housing. Well, I called them. They said, are you homeless? And I said, yes, I'm staying at a motel that the uh, a bishop is. Well, I said, I'm staying at a motel that um, someone is helping me pay for, you know, someone. And maybe I shouldn't have said that, but he, she said, Techni- technically, you aren't homeless. I said, why? Yes, I am. I've been staying here for about three years. And she's like, well, Homeless means that you're either in a shelter or out on the streets. I'm like, I'm 60 years old. I can't, I'm visually impaired. I can't, I can't be out on the streets like that. Yeah. Yeah. And over here, they don't have homeless shelters. There you go. (laughs) Miss Beth, thank you so much for your call. I appreciate it. Thank you. Keep keep fighting Mm -hmm. for, for that space. You deserve it. Yep. Yep. Area code 413 has their hand raised. Okay. Thanks, Beth. Hi, my Area name code. is Lori. Uh, Lori. Has Lori. gone. Where are you, where are you yep. calling from? Yep. I'm calling from Springfield, Massachusetts. Springfield, Mass. Yes. Not too yes, far sir. south from me. Gotcha. Oh, really? So, where, where are you from? Where are you from? I'm in Watertown, Mass. No kidding. Uh, you're Paul, no. right? No, and I'm Brian. Paul is from Florida, and I'm from Massachusetts. So you're from Springfield, down in the southern part of the state. And what's your situation? What's my situation? Well, um, yeah. I'm disabled, and... Um, my state commission for the blind, uh, when they classif- when they registered me in 1970, and back then I was like, um, seven, uh, I want to say, seven or eight. Mm-hmm. You still there? We're not hearing, yeah. She's unmuted. Hello. Miss Lorik, are you still with us? She is unmuted. She seems to have yep. disappeared, guys. Let's move okay. on. Do we have another? Um, Sheila has her hand raised again, and no other hands at this time. Perfect. 
So, Michelle, you have. Go ahead. I just have. I have three quick things to say. Yes. Um, that are that are solutions, or well, they're 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 mitigations, but they're not answers. Yep. Um, in my um, in my area, there is a coordinated entry system, and what you're supposed to do. Muted. There's Lori. Um, yeah. Uh, hold, hold on, a second, hold Lori. on, Lori. Hold on, don't go away. Well, don't don't keep muting me, and I'll stay. Well, okay. We go ahead. You know, Zoom keeps having issues with me. I don't know. You know. I well, that you. that happened to me before too, actually. Um, so that. there's the coordinated entry system, but you but and and it's supposed to have the homeless. It's supposed to help the homeless or folks at risk of being homeless right. get into this one system where multiple. Um, case management agencies can uh, pop people's names in and, and they go through one data management thing. Um, but, uh, and, and that's what I did for my friend, but it was, um, you had to, you had to know who's back to scratch and you had to know where some uh, willing folks were. And the other um, two things are, I hope you guys talk about ABLE accounts because not everybody can get one, but they are very, um, very, very useful uh, if if one can get it. And rather than me talking about it, um, I mean, someone can explain it, but I have one and um, it doesn't have a lot in it, but um, but it's but it can be helpful for things like this. And the last thing is there are nonprofits we have one and i don't know what its range is but it's called season or seasons of sharing who will provide a whole rent deposit and um it, it they might do um so they'll pay for the first they'll pay for the rent deposit but i don't know if they'll do the first or last month's rent and what I had to do with Mr. Couch Surfer is um, something that technically is probably a bad thing, but I, I had him PayPal me one month of his portion of rent through Section 8, and I just held it off to the side. I didn't touch it. And because I knew that um, we would get the word about whether the deposit had been approved to go to the place he was looking into. Um, at the end of the month. So I knew, nice. that have, I, I knew that he wouldn't have money at that point. So I grabbed it when he first got his check and I just sort of put it in a little box as it were and, and held it. And then on the day that the deposit was approved and sent to the uh, rent complex, then I, I popped it back into his account and he had it. Nice. But but it, requ it requires a lot of out-of-the-box thinking. It requires a lot of knowledge of community resources. And it frankly requires a lot of, I was essentially his case manager without pay. I was an unpaid caregiver. Yep. And, and he had in-home supportive services, which is California's, you know, home care thing. And it was a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Thanks for doing yes, it, indeed. though. Thank you. Miss Lori. 
I hope I can stay on the call long enough to say what I have to say. So we you hope know, you I'm can. Sorry. Please do. I, I'm 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 sorry if I was rude earlier. It seems to be my reputation lately. But I I'm tired of somebody playing with the mute button here. I'm trying to talk and I'm getting interrupted. You know by mute. You know, and I, I we, need to get we out believe, what I need to say. We believe that that is an aspect of Zoom tonight. Yeah. You well, Zoom has better not, behave. We, we have not the, been muting people this evening. Yeah. No. Not at some, all. Some so. something is. So something yes, I understand. wants me not to talk, you know. Must, must be I don't go on I, I don't go on a webinar very often, but when I do, I guess I get that all the time. But anyway, um the commission for the blind in my state of Massachusetts in Springfield got me in. Long story very short. Um, I, I was paying more money for transportation to and from work. I, I grew up in a small town and, um, and actually I, um, I used to live in Chicopee, which is, uh, another city near, near me, uh, with my parents, but then they moved to Palmer, Massachusetts, which is the boonies. Mm -hmm. And, um, we, uh, we moved into a, a, a house next door to a, a saloon that my family owned, and then, um, then when they sold that house, uh, my my parents uh, moved into my grandparents' house because when my nice. my mom had, my mom had me when she was pregnant with me, um, she was exposed to toxoplasmosis, which gave oh, me. Dear. Not only blindness, get this, not only blindness, but hydrocephalus, which is water on the brain. Oh, my yes. goodness. So my mom had her hands full with, you know, with taking care of me and everything. And, you know, our grandparents were built in babysitters. Good thing I had a brother, um, and I still have him, but our parents are gone. Um our biological father died in 2016, and mom just died on January 7, 2022. Wow! So my brother, Ooh. my brother is now the owner of the house we grew up in, and our grandparents are gone. Our parents are gone, and so it's just him and me. And whatever surviving relatives we have left, they're spread throughout the country. So are are you so, living on on your own now, Lori, or what's the deal? I'm, I'm, yep. I've been living on my own 25 years nice. and, um, I moved, I moved in in 1997. Well, if it wasn't for the commission for the blind, giving me that push, I'd still be there. Uh, I mean, I'd still be at living at home, but, um, my, my commission for the blind counselor sat me down. The one I had at the time sat me down and said, you know, you're paying for a ride to and from work every day. Half of your paycheck is going towards transportation. You need to be within a 10-mile radius of a bus line to get to and from work, and it'll cost you either reduced rate or next to nothing. Think about it. But we insist that, you know, because, and then her exact words were, we are not going to be able to help you unless you move out on your own. In other words, they couldn't give me, they couldn't give me uh, rehab training. They couldn't give me, you know, uh, um, homemaking skills. They couldn't give me any of those things while I was at home. The only way they would would do it and could do it is if I was on my own. 
Well, that was a big adjustment, guys. Boy, I bet it, it was. It was huge. You know, I mean, breaking ties with your family, telling you, hey, I love you, but you know, this scares me, but I'm going to do it. You know, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. It's going to be harder. Yep. And and at that time, I was uh, 34, and I'm 59 now. Next year, Lord willing, I'll be 60. Wow. Anyway, anyway, long story, very short, my commission for the blind counselor at the time, um, I didn't apply to a bunch of places like a lot of people should, but um, I asked the commission for the blind, what about, and I named the building I live in, and they said, oh, yeah, a lot of our clients live there. So I said, okay, well, let's apply. So we got the application. We filled it out. We mailed it with snail mail. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, anyway, uh, it, it didn't take as long. It took, they told me it would take, depending on apartment size I requested, it would take one or, one or two years. It took mm-hmm. me only six months. Nice. I applied in November 1996, and I got in May of 1997. And, and you've been there ever since? And I've been there ever since. Knock on wood, yes. Congratulations, yes, Miss Lori. Uh, yeah, I, I had my 25th anniversary of living here, but I'm not saying it didn't come with its tribulations and trials and stuff. When I had my walkthrough slash inspection interview, um, my counselor and I, we saw the apartment, and um, and I had more vision then than I do now. Um, mm-hmm. Now I got like next to nothing. All I can see now is fog and light. Back then, I could mm-hmm. see the outline of what people look like, but I could tell what room I was in. So mm-hmm. now, I now I have to touch furniture in a room to oh, okay, this is my living room. But anyway, um, but I've been here since uh, June twenty sixth, nineteen ninety seven, and this past June twenty sixth, twenty twenty two, marked my silver anniversary. Nice. And you know, Miss and I'm not, and I'm not saying it didn't come with its tribulations. You know, I've had several, which I'm not going to yeah. go into. But you know, but um, but the gist of it was that um, I I told you know I I says, hey mom, guess what? You know, I'm I'm uh, you know, I already got my security deposit paid, and I got my keys and everything, and I want to move in. You know, I wanted to move in on the thirtieth of June that year. And my mom said, well, I'm going away. I'm going to Maine uh, to visit my friend Jean. Could you ask them if they can have you come in earlier? I said, how much earlier? That's going to cost me more money. And I was right, $5 mm-hmm. extra. But, I, but it was worth it. It was worth it because I moved in on my what would have been my Uncle Walter's birthday. Nice. Uh, Miss Lurie, a, thank, you. That was, thank you a lot for that your was call. That a mixed blessing. I bet. You got You're it. welcome. You got it. You're hey, welcome. take care. Thank yep. you for calling care. this evening. We really you know, appreciate anytime. it. Yep. You got it. Okay, thanks. Yep. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye. Currently have no hands raised. Very good. So let's talk for a minute about what ACB did this summer. Um, ACB passed a resolution this summer at our convention that had to do with housing. Um, and 
I think it was actually a pretty good resolution, but one of the things that surprised me, Brian, <clears throat> was I would have thought that we had all kinds of resolutions about this issue. And when we talked as the Resolutions Committee and also looked back over the past quite a number of years, there, there were no housing resolutions. And it, and it kind of surprised me. This one came out of California. And in fact, I think Sheila, who was talking with us before, was one of the people who um, who encouraged the passage of that resolution. Um, but let me talk for just a minute about what the resolution calls upon ACB to do. And then perhaps we can talk a little bit, uh, you and I, Brian, anyway, and Marianne as well, and others, <clears throat> about some of the steps that that we can take. One of the things that one of the things that uh, that we talked about when we um, were approaching the resolution was that housing is very much a local issue. It's not something that we can do an awful lot with the national level. So somehow we've got to figure out a way uh, that will enable ACB to perhaps be able to work with its affiliates to try to create training opportunities with regard to, to housing, um, but also to work, with, um, to work with national entities like housing and urban development to see if they can't create some overarching standards that they would apply to local issues um, given the federal responsibilities um, to do some things in terms of subsidized housing. Uh, the other thing that we talked about was, as Laurie said earlier, there aren't very many provisions that make any sense <clears throat> that deal with the specific needs that HUD housing has um, to provide for some of the specific components that people who are blind need if a housing situation is going to be fully accessible. These are things like accessible thermostats, things like um, some, some way of being able to utilize your stove or to utilize a microwave oven if it's there, washers and dryers and that kind of thing. Um, and so one of the other things that the resolution at least suggests is that we work with some entities to try to develop and recommend uh, some standards that need to apply in terms of uh, some of the kinds of uh, adaptations that ought to exist, particularly in subsidized housing, because those are some things we can have an, an effect on. There are some requirements uh, under both Title II and III of the ADA, um, but they are honored for the most part in the breach, and for the most part, again, they don't relate very much. Um, to people who are blind. Um, and I think the last major component of this housing resolution um, is uh, we feel like at some point ACB needs to think about um, doing some training that will, that will perhaps be done through community calls that will enable our members to know better what their rights and responsibilities are under uh, subsidized housing, because here's what 
here's what at least one of the whereas clauses implied, and I think it's absolutely correct. The poorest population in our country at the moment are folks with disabilities. And therefore, these, these are the folks who are perhaps most in need uh, of subsidized housing. But for the most part, don't have access to that subsidized housing, either because the portals aren't accessible, the paperwork is accessible, there aren't good rules that operate locally, um, and on and on and on, all the stuff we've talked about earlier in the program. So the bottom line is, it's we believe this is a huge issue um, that ACB needs to get behind and become actively involved in, because potentially there are huge numbers of folks who are a part of the American Council of the Blind who could potentially benefit. So, sorry, talked for a long time, Mr. Bryan, but that's you did a fine job where we are. Because you sat on the resolutions committee, so I did. you got more than your fair share of access to this as it was being crafted. Um, I So one thing that, people out there need to understand about the ACB resolution process is that they come up for a discussion and a vote during our annual convention. Those that are adopted then go through a second process called prioritization. And in this, uh, a group of individuals review, review the resolutions, determine which have very specific timelines in them that need to happen you know if if it calls on acb to do something relative to a bill uh and you know congress is going to uh, adjourn and then reconvene in the new year so it has to be done by that date these kinds of things play part in that prioritization the other thing that takes part of that process is determining what staffing and or volunteer work has to be done to move that particular issue forward. And there's a limit to how many things the national office can take on in the course of a year. So some things by their nature take a lot of effort and fall to the bottom. Other things take little effort and rise to the top because one is more readily achievable than the other given staffing levels, uh, experience with volunteers doing things. Um, so that plays part in this. So we passed this resolution dealing with housing. So I would like to ask you, Paul, what do you think it would take to implement it in terms of staff and or volunteers? You said that we need to engage our our state affiliates uh, that sounds think, like something that is a mix of the two that is staff and volunteers yeah i think that's right the the, the trouble is that and and i think this is probably one of the reasons why um acb has not done a lot on this issue is we we don't have any element of of our structure that is really designated to look at housing as a primary issue. Um, ACB families could certainly play a part 
in something like that. Um, I, I, I suppose that our employment committee could because obviously housing is going to impact the ability of somebody that, to be employed. But, but really the bottom line is it's not their responsibility and it's not strictly speaking families' responsibilities either. Um, so I think part of the issue is where do you put that and, and, and how do you develop priorities to make it done? I think, I think what, what, what I, and, and I haven't talked with, with ACB staff or, or leadership to see what they want to do or, or how they want to do it, but I think, I think I would probably create a task force consisting partly of board members and, and partly of interested people um, on the outside who would have the responsibility of developing what would amount to an implementation plan for, for a policy and strategy with regard to housing. Um, cause I, because I'm not sure there's a specific entity that's set up within ACB to do it. And, and, but I think it, that may be the most direct way of beginning to, to put a group of people together um, to look at the issues, prioritize them, and then come up with kind of an implementation plan for ACB in, in this area. What do you think, Brian? I, I am a firm believer in task forces as opposed to committees. Oh, me too. Committees tend to be perpetual, mm-hmm. while task forces, when properly put together, have uh, a limited time before they have to be reauthorized uh, and, and I think that's a good governance thing to do in the first place one of the other things is there really needs to be three groups of people on such a task force you're right there needs to be uh, member slash members of the board there needs to be the appropriate interaction with a specific member of the staff right and there need to be state affiliate presidents, mm-hmm. and there needs to be some some getting of expertise like Lori on mm-hmm. such a task force, so that we don't spend all our time educating ourselves. We're going to have to uh, on such a task force, but we want to make sure that we we can bootstrap ourselves up pretty quickly to start putting such a thing together. It will eventually have to be uh, supported by uh, the board. Um, for all intents and purposes, it really needs to be supported by the president, the executive director, and the board to have any hope of implementation. And all of what I just described is not a, um, a quick thing. You know, the board has uh, so many really excellent members on it that we shouldn't find it all that difficult to find a board to champion this idea that you've discussed, the task Mm -hmm. force approach. So that's one thing we can do. Um, Another thing we can do is, uh, as you and Lori... uh, pounded away at 
housing is very much a local thing. Sometimes it's local, meaning multiple counties, such as our friend from New Mexico mm-hmm. was discussing. And sometimes local means the municipality you're in. Um, and that really requires much more grassroots effort than many of ACB's issues. Absolutely, HUD is a national issue. And I think, quite honestly, part of it is regulatory and part of it is simply financing. Like Lori said, how much has the HUD budget gone up over the years? It's been flatlined. So we need to advocate for more funding for HUD uh, as well as advocating with HUD to re-examine their regulations. And that would include, um, you know, the requirements that the intake process be accessible, that um, the definitions be more accurate and understandable. Uh, These are, you know, so we need change on a number of levels, but I really think the first thing we should be advocating for is more funding. It's simply inadequate to meet the needs of people who otherwise qualify for the service. See, I'm, I'm not sure that more funding will help. Um, because we've, I mean, there there have been lots of times when we've worked for more funding for HUD in the past on the assumption that by simply making more dollars available, it would be, in fact, easier for folks who are blind or have low vision to get access to subsidized housing. I, I, I don't think it translates that, that way because there is such a huge funding or such a huge housing problem that as soon as you throw more money at it, um, there there are all kinds of people who get in line more quickly than others do. And so one of the difficulties, I think, is to somehow figure out a way to say to HUD, you need to develop and implement some programs that specifically deal with the disadvantage that people who are blind face in accessing subsidized housing. Um, In other words, instead of simply saying we want more funding, I think we have to ask ask HUD to do something or and and perhaps potentially ask the legislature to do something um, to to develop and implement programs that will specifically deal with some of the needs of, of, of blind or low vision folks. Perhaps, it, I mean, we, it, it perhaps could be broader than that. I mean, maybe we could, could do legislation or, or HUD regulations that would allocate a larger proportion of the HUD budget to serving the needs of people with disabilities since we know that the population of people with disabilities is as large as it is, and since we know that the, that the number of specific 
disability vouchers that are available or slots that are available for people with disabilities is much smaller than the potential population. I don't think you do one without the other. I really yep. think it has to be uh, both working in cooperation with one another. Miss Marriott, we were you going to say something? Yes, no, just that you have one hand raised. I just wanted you to be aware of that. Oh, great. Good. Yep. Christy? Christy, go oh, ahead. Can you hear me? Yes. Hey, Christy, how are you doing? All right, how are you doing? We're well, hanging my, in there. Oh, good, good. I have a couple of things here. Now, we live in a building, it's just an apartment building, and it's subsidized housing. Is there mm -hmm. a difference between that and Section 8? I don't quite get that. You know, we live in one of those places that, well, if you're a senior or just, you know, one of those kind of buildings. Yeah, Section, the, the difference is that that Section 8 are vouchers that are that are given to cover part of the rent for an ordinary apartment building, not a specialized apartment place like the one that you live in. What you I live see. in is is subsidized housing rather than Section 8. Right, right. I got you. I got you. So do you have some idea? Do you have some idea of the difference between what you pay for rent and what you'd have to pay for rent elsewhere? Uh, probably a pretty good bit because we're able to put in the medical expenses. Uh, and like I know, a rental apartment, a one bedroom around here costs about $900. Um, so, you know, whereas we're paying 500 or 516 for, you know, our one bedroom here. Uh, gotcha. You know, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that would be the difference. And of course, the problem is is that not everybody takes Section 8, I believe, right? Yeah. Yep. So. You're right. Cool. Thank you so, very much for letting us know. Well, and the other question or other thing I Go had, ahead. and I don't know if this is just me, or, but I notice in all of these buildings, because I've lived in three of them, but in every one of these buildings, they do not have air conditioning in the bedroom. Do they think that people who are old and disabled don't need to be comfortable in their bedroom? <laughs> that, that's <laughs> funny. That's, that's very odd. You know, that is very things, strange. And, and, that's, that, and that's in Louisiana and South Dakota. Now, my landlady, fortunately, I mean, she's a, this is a private building. It's not owned by some big corporation. So she yep. put, put one of those air conditions in my bedroom that go out the window, you know, one of those... Right, window units. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, not the window unit, but the kind that sits on the floor and then oh, the gotcha. hose goes out the window to that one. That that uh, yep. I have one but of those a, here in my basement. Right, but as a rule, from what I've seen, these subsidized apartments do not have air condition in the um the the, the, the buildings. They have them in, in the, the living room. Right, but not in the bedroom. Right, <laughs> I don't. That's crazy. But anyway, it is that, crazy. That, that is. So hey, all right. Well, thank, thank you. Thank yep, you for calling. Thank you. Yep. You know he, he's absolutely right. Um, there is this whole class called subsidized housing, and one of the interesting things about that is while he's living in a privately owned but 
government subsidized housing. Um, the fact of the matter is most of that kind of housing is government owned. Um, right. And it's very, very cookie cutter. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, different layouts and those kind of things. And there's pushback in communities because these tend to look like um, Soviet housing, if you understand me. Kind of a cinder blocky square. Uh, it, it just it looks like low income housing, but it's not that it was designed to be unpleasant. It's just that the least expensive cost for building a building takes advantages of a number of things that would be more expensive if they were to change it up. Mm-hmm. Where are the stairwells? Where are the elevators? Where are the windows placed? Um, what's the nature of communal space and availability of it? Does everybody need to have a washer and dryer in their unit? No. Therefore, the washer and dryers will be where? In the basement. Mm-hmm. Or uh, somewhere. Yeah, they'll, they'll be a communal, but almost always they're in the basement because it's less expensive to plumb rather than on the 12th floor for, well, makes sense. for such things, yep. that kind of stuff. So these all play a part in things. The, the idea that all housing is local also has to do with what local zoning authorities have done to limit certain types of housing, especially multifamily. An awful lot of towns and cities worrying about uh, the value of their property if a high-rise comes up next door have really put the skids on multiple dwellings. Just when our nation should, could sure use some. Mm-hmm. So I think Terry Pacheco has her hand up, Mr. Bryan. Oh, is that right, Miss Marion? Well, I hear Marianne's keyboard. Yeah, she is there. Good. I am here. So the question is. Does Terry have her hand it says up? She ha- it says she has. Terry had her hand up, but she didn't. But she didn't have the there we got request. Now <laughs> she's got it. Welcome, Terry. How are you hey doing? There. I'm doing quite well, and I hope you two both are as well. We oh, are. It's a no um, board, board member who can help us get this resolution implemented. <laughs> but you do know that I don't have the list in front of me. But you do know that the prioritizations took place. Were approved at the last board meeting. Right. Last and week. do you know where where housing landed? I that's what I just said. I don't have the the spreadsheet in front of me. I'm afraid. Gotcha. Think it, but I do think have it was. But I do have two. something else that I think that that some of your listeners might be interested in, as long as well as both of you, and that's I think I put it out on leadership a couple of weeks ago, but um, Housing and Urban Development Office of uh, Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity. Um, is looking for, is seeking people for Schedule A appointments for uh, positions within HUD. They have increased the 
money for disability issues at HUD. And uh, so people might want to take a look at that uh, because, you know, for anyone that's especially in the D.C. area, or Do think- I don't know if it's in other positions as well, but they are looking for, and they are specifically looking for Schedule A appointees. Do you think that you that you could send it out to lists again, Tara? Do you think you could find it or, or not? Sure, sure. Yeah, why don't you do that? Um, just so everybody is aware, a Section A appointment is, is a kind of appointment that is specifically designed for people with disabilities. And it's, it is initially a two-year appointment um, under which you are being evaluated, um, but where, where the specific requirements of the job that may exist can actually be waived um, during a Section A appointment. So that's what a Section A is. That's a good point, though, Terry. Thank you for sharing that with us. Sure thing. Very much. Very much. Are there? Did we miss any low vision issues here this evening, Terry? Hmm. I, quite honestly, I haven't been on that long. I was making dinner. Um, oh wow! Not- how do? How dare you? Eat? <laughs> so, I, um, I comes to mind is when we talk about what makes housing accessible. We've been talking about things such as usable appliances in those spaces um, and the like. From yeah, a low right. vision perspective, things like striping of staircases uh, so that they're more visually um, accessible to low vision users. Uh, some that people would be do, one. Some people do need that. Um, some do, some don't. You know, that kind of and, thing. I'm thinking, I'm thinking more about um, touch screens that are um, of a decent size. You know, we don't have a lot of black space or what we usually consider extra white space in a document. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got a, let's say, a 5 by 10 inch area and you're using 2 by 3 inches of it so that you can make everything nice and cute and small, um, it's not real helpful for anyone. Um, I gotcha. That so it's a universal thing, design kind of related issues yeah, when it comes to touchscreen controls. And there are a lot of universal design issues. One of the other things that's a very, this has always been an issue, whether it's with Randolph Shepard or um, in any kind of a commercial area, and, and it carries over into public housing as well, is... And it carries over into banking is my big issue with it is the danger that we put that we tend to end up in sometimes by making something wheelchair accessible but not low vision accessible. And what I'm saying, what let me give you an example. If you've got an ATM that you have to bend over to read the screen, you are in the most vulnerable position you can be for somebody to come up behind you. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Yep, makes sense. Yeah. So and, the know, world and the, of and compromise. the same thing holds true. And the same thing holds true when you're putting in a 36 inch countertop. Um, that's, for, and, you know, unless you've got a, a 58 inch person, um, 
that's pretty low for the average person with low vision. There were a lot of compromises made between uh, wheelchair users and yes, uh, blindness were. when it came to detectable warnings. Yes. It didn't meet the most uh, valuable, the most accessible to either group because we knew we had to accommodate others with disabilities in that. That's so, right. I was on the Architectural uh, Barriers Board in Massachusetts back in 1974. So <laughs> Exactly. So you, you know about the give and takes in doing such a thing. I Did we get everything was. we wanted in terms of detectable warnings? No, we didn't. But we made enough compromise that we weren't opposed by wheelchair users who yeah. found the detectable warnings, put them at risk <coughs> uh, when they were fully optimal for us, uh, blind and low vision. We're at 856. Uh, we Ms. are approaching the end of things. So, Ms. Terry, I thank you for your call. I will. And please do resend that. I will resend that out. I'll That'd put it great. on leadership this, this evening. Mm -hmm. Sounds very good. good. Thanks. Mr. Okay. Bryan, final comments? Final comments is uh, housing is a problem all over the world, not the least of which are industrial nations such as the one we are privileged to live in. There are fewer affordable living spaces being built than we need. The cost of uh, first-time home buyers is out of reach of most. I just saw a piece today about the number of millennials who have simply given up the hope of ever owning their own home. Uh, about uh, individuals who are uh, trying to take advantage of the lack of laws in some jurisdictions, limiting uh, rent increases, uh, the problems people are having who you know, there are still those kinds of housing loans where things, uh, you can have balloon payments. You can, a variable rate mortgage is still out there. And if there is a significant number of individuals who are forced to default on their loan because like the housing crash in 2008, they owe more money on their home than their home is worth. We're going to see a lot of turmoil in this area. And as I might have said before, if we don't advocate for blind people, nobody else is. We have to be an advocate for our community. Not that the whole world doesn't need advocates, but if we don't advocate, ain't nobody going to do it for us. So I hope everybody takes this, pardon me, this issue as uh, a core issue that we as individuals and we as the American Council of the Blind take seriously 
and prioritize uh, in our top position uh, in terms of advocacy. Next week, we'll probably do something with regard to employment, and that actually takes us to the end of our time. So good night, everyone. Good night, all. <laughs>